from HerbMentor.com. This is HerbMentor Radio. You are listening to Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com. I'm John Gallagher. My guest today is K.P. Kalsa. K.P. has been a practitioner of natural medicine for over 35 years. His resume might take up the entire show, but here are some highlights. K.P. is a senior editor for the Harvard University Natural Standard, a professor at the Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, as well as Bastyr University's College of Naturopathic Medicine. He is also on the board of directors for the American Herbalist Guild and is a senior research scientist for the Yogi Tea Company. Author of over 1,500 published articles, authored or has been part of more than 30 books, including his most recent book, The Way of Ayurvedic Herbs. This is the third in the series started by Michael Tierra, and it's available at your favorite bookseller. KP's website is kpkhalsa, that's K-P-K-H-A-L-S-A, dot com. KP, welcome. Hi, John. And and um, really, folks, listen, and this, this intro is just the tip of the iceberg as far as uh, all the things I could say that KP's done, so I'm not sure where to start. But uh, So, KP, uh, it's one of the best places I like to start when I interview folks, is your story. So, you know... What brought you into natural health? How did you how did you get started in all this? I was very ill as a child, actually. I think it's a very common story of the wounded healer. I, I, when I was 10 years old, I was diagnosed as having an illness that was invariably uh, fatal, slow degeneration, and everyone died before they were 40. So to a 10-year-old, that doesn't really mean very much. But as I got older, I was in pain um, every day, and I was getting pretty motivated. The great thing about getting a diagnosis that there's nothing medically that can be done is that it completely frees you up to do anything else. So I tried various other things and uh, began to get some relief, and slowly over time I realized that if one or two things could work, there might be others, and began a long-term investigation. Eventually I met my mentor when I was a teenager, my mentor Yogi Bhajan, and uh, I ended up studying with him for 32 years, and uh, the rest is history. And um, so, you know, a lot of folks listening to the show come from many backgrounds with a lot of herbal interests and all. And do you specifically um, mostly work in Ayurvedic medicine? You know, I consider myself a global herbalist. When I began to study herbalism, there was no Ayurveda here for all intents and purposes. My mentor was an accomplished uh, Ayurvedic uh, practitioner, and we we talked in Ayurvedic terms, but we didn't have any texts. We didn't have the, the materials. I learned about herbs that I, I couldn't put my hands on, and so we would use Western-type substitutes or Chinese substitutes or whatever we could get. So it was a mm-hmm. global learning experience. Uh, these days, uh, I'm thought of mainly as the Ayurveda guy because uh, I do have a background in that area, and when an Ayurveda guy is needed, they call on me. But really, in day-to-day practice, I, I think in terms of whatever is going to work most appropriately. And, you know, at, over a career of almost 40 years, you just synthesize things, and I just think of myself now as an herbalist. Right. Okay. Um, so, you know, we have on HerbMentor.com, we love having um, practitioners like yourself come on and answer questions. Uh, so when I put out that you were... Um, going to be here to um to to our members lots of people wrote in <laughs> with questions uh, um so let's see um 
if you're if you're up for it, we can get to some uh, just dive right in and get to some of these sure, questions because there were so many. I just want to make sure that uh, you know people took the time to to write in, had a chance to get their their questions answered. Um, and so I thought I'd start with some ones kind of a little more uh, generic, just about herbs and all and whatnot. And um, we had one person write in that uh, she would like to uh, hear some uh, recommendations for the inexperienced herbalist. She says she doesn't have many health issues, but she's looking for an overall healthy way to live. So, like, you know, she's used to run into the aspirin bottle for a headache. So, in that case or others, like, uh, so just a way to start here for folks who just might want to start looking at a natural way of, of, of dealing with some of their health issues. Yeah, sure, and I think that's a very appropriate question to start. Uh, herbalism uh, in every culture in which it's practiced is an integrated part of a holistic healing system, and we have this way of dealing with these things in our culture where we license and study and approach things by modality. So herbalism is um, a topic, a, a subject, that uh, people learn to study in sort of isolation from other things. That doesn't happen anywhere else. So ultimately, typically in most other uh, cultures, people would be learning about diet and body work and exercise and lifestyle and managing their uh, daily schedule and all those practices uh, together. So that's really what's missing from our approach to these kinds of things. Our drug-oriented mindset for the last... uh, hundred years or so in America has created a very different kind of situation that doesn't occur anywhere else where people are used to thinking of exactly as you suggested uh, disease X gets remedy X so headache gets willow bark mm-hmm. or aspirin so I think the, the way to approach this for everyone who's launching themselves on this path is not to think of herbs as drug delivery systems but to think of herbalism as part of a holistic natural living health maintenance system. The main thing that people do in other cultures that we don't do here is to use herbs on a daily basis uh, as part of their their food and their life, mm-hmm. uh, an approach I call culinary herbalism. That's one of the things I'm really teaching a lot about these days, ways to get herbs into your food and food into your herbs so that they become a part of your everyday life and you can consume herbs every day. So most cultures have uh, half a dozen very special herbs that they learn to revere that they use as general tonics or adaptogens. Usually they're gender-specific, some for women, some for men, that people begin taking at puberty, and they take them every day forever. Uh, Ginseng would be an example of an herb like that uh, from Ayurveda, Ashwagandha. Herbs that support wide variety of healing functions and systems in the body. So get going with those. The other thing that I'd mention is individualizing therapy. Western herbalists usually don't have a great connection with how to decide what their particular body needs on a moment-to-moment basis and a long-term basis. Both are important. So you have a bacterial infection in your sinuses, you could use golden seal, a potent Mm -hmm. uh, cooling herb, uh, or garlic, a potent uh, warming herb. Both of them will treat the infection, but ultimately over time, uh, any given person that takes that, either one of those, about a third will get better, about a third will stay the same, and about a third will get worse. <laughs> better. We'd like to encourage people to 
find out what's going on with their individual body and then craft a lifestyle that works. Remember, all these complicated natural healing systems are all about what works. So some highfalutin system of classification and endless hair-splitting detail is only worth it if it's actually working for you. So you experiment a little bit and you find out what works. You eat a lot of celery. That doesn't make you feel good. You switch over to um, garlic. That makes you feel better. And you gradually craft a lifestyle that works while still standing on the shoulders of giants so that 5,000 years of herbal history that our uh, ancestors developed. Okay. So... Um you know, there was a um, Melody uh, wrote in that was she was looking for us like she 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 said we'd like to hear uh, you talk about like because kind of continues along with this what you see as a, uh, a a global healthy protocol because you're talking about that before and um, you know a protocol that'll help keep the diet healthy in the first place like you were talking about before with with diet and everything um, and then kind of going into what. Uh, like to hear your definition of what causes disease or imbalance to take place in the first place, like what's happening in the body, for example, in relation to all of that? I don't think there is any universally healthy diet. I think uh, there are certain things that most people don't do very well with. Refined carbohydrates aren't very healthy for anybody. People need to have a balance of nutrients in their body, protein, carbohydrate, fat has to be an appropriate balance for that person's particular body. We need a, a rich intake of micronutrients, vitamins and minerals. All of those things are possible if you eat a varied diet of whole natural foods. Unfortunately, most of us are starting from way behind the mark and it's very challenging for us to get to a, a place of health by eating the foods that are available to us. Uh, Ultimately, your diet has to be individualized, and there are great techniques, especially from uh, Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, to be able to, um, uh, to accomplish that. So the way to live healthy is to investigate your own situation, experiment, and dig into some of those. Now, but what was the second part of the question? Well, um, hearing the definition of what like, causes disease or imbalance in the first place okay. and what uh, has happening for, in the body for that to occur. Okay. So... The challenge here is to find the starting point, and you can't because first we have to talk about what, constant, what what aspects of your health are nature and what are nurture, and those that are nature come from your parents. You can't change those. Those come from their parents. So there's a certain amount of genetic propensity to develop certain kinds of diseases in certain ways. So, for example, the human body is basically a big inflammation generator, and our basic kind of default on switch is to inflame. So the body then has to produce hormones ongoingly to control and maintain that inflammation, largely from the adrenal glands. So when the body doesn't have the, the resources that it needs, just across the board in terms of micronutrients and healthy fats and those things, the, the body can't produce those anti-inflammatory hormones. So most Americans are in a state of sort of continuous, modest, moderate inflammation and things are being developed. Well, so why do some people develop an inflammatory condition in their small intestine, some in their uh, joints of their hands, other people in their skin, because of the genetic propensity? Mm -hmm. So ultimately, it's some combination of genetics and breaking the laws of nature that cause uh, disease. This goes back to what I was saying earlier about our drug-oriented mindset, is that we have the sense that somehow, if we can find the sin that we committed... Uh, we can uh, find the magic remedy to cure it, or 
that our disease sort of dropped on us out on the sky like a big surprise. Oh, today I have a headache. That headache started 30 years ago with <laughs> your underlying basic health starting to get wobbly and not fixing it then and letting things accumulate and gradually get to a point in your body where those imbalances continued and then you have the propensity for a headache and a little something, a little um, stressful night or uh, less uh, a night of good uh, inadequate sleep or some dietary change puts you over the edge. In the meantime, I don't see any problem with treating those symptoms, but ultimately uh, we have to get to back to what causes these things and bring yourself back to balance, which means having your body run not too slow, not too fast, your metabolic rate, not too hot, not too cold, you need to be not too heavy, not too light, the right amount of moisture in your tissues, all those things. <laughs> and most of these things tend to be pretty self-correcting. Your body is intending to heal if it has the resources to do it. It's just a matter of giving yourself those resources, micronutrients, um, herb tonics, that sort of thing. And over time, your body knows what to do with it, and your health is restored. So you're saying... You're saying that really nature is going to take its course in the healing. However, you have to make sure it's getting what it naturally needs. Yeah. And, again, in our culture, treating symptoms is what we're used to. We mentioned the aspirin bottle. And I think just for people's comfort, there's no problem with that. But switching willow bark for aspirin is uh, another temporary solution that's going to yield the same thing. You're still going to have just as many headaches, but you'll have a slightly less toxic way of treating them. Wouldn't it be great to never have a headache again? I think that's possible. And then that's when you kind of use the tools that you have on a constitutional basis then. So if you're looking at somebody through either a Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic or or other methods that you use. Yeah, that's right. Ultimately, you have to do something to get people enrolled in the process so they feel comfortable and committed with natural medicine. And then treat their issues as they come up. If someone has a cold, we're going to help them feel better from the cold. But we know that that's not going to prevent them from having more colds. So mm-hmm. over time, we want to understand what's going on with them constitutionally and bring them back to that state of balance, which for most Americans is probably, let's say, at least five years of diligent effort. And since most people have difficulty being diligent, you can maybe 10 years. But, you know, so those 10 years are going to go by anyway, and wouldn't you rather be a person who at you know, 80 years old is more like Jack LaLanne than your grandmother. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. You know, a lot of times I'll, you know, just say, because so many people get so caught up in the diet thing, like, am I doing the right exact? And they they get kind of anxiety about it. And a lot of times I'll just say, you know, why don't don't you just take away, like you said, the the processed and uh, carbohydrates and and the junk food. And and that's a huge start right there, and just getting more micronutrients. I mean, may, maybe you can't, maybe you're not yet have it refined to the perfect constitutional diet. But gosh, I mean that that's a huge part of it right there, isn't it? Well, you're right, and that that brings you back to a place of, for most people, a very good starting point, and the remainder of the super refinement, for most people, is not the main, not the best place to focus their attention. For many people, a huge effort of changing their diet and deciding whether to eat cucumbers or celery in the morning um, is ends up with you know a two percent improvement in health and that what you mentioned is actually a good thing to, to talk about in that people tend to sort of become uh, 
excited about one particular thing. So I hear many people ask questions like, what's the best water filter? Because we know that drinking clean water is the single most important thing you can do for your health. Or what's the perfect diet? Or mm-hmm. exactly hours of aerobic exercise each, each week should I get? All those things are important, and they're all important to a certain extent. So any you can do like that is to the good. I don't think there is any one thing that is the ultimate for anybody or for everybody. That's great. I, I love hearing that. Just, uh, you know, not being so obsessive about one thing, but just uh, kind of, just kind of, uh, yeah, just kind of overall, there's so many things. Like there, like you said, there's 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 a diet, there's exercise and herbs and everything. And, and, and gosh, if we obsess about every little bit, we, <laughs> we'll get ourselves sicker. <laughs> So, um, let's, so uh, just get a little more into some detail uh, questions. We have a question from a person, and it kind of shifts a little bit here, um, because she she wants to ask. Um, uh, um, for, okay, let's see here. I would like to uh, ask how one should approach um, from shifting, really. So it's just starting to hear shift from reducing prescription medicines towards herb and natural medicine support. My mother is on many medications for arthritis and heart disease. She's worried about interactions as well as stopping or reducing what she currently is taking. And that's a good point because a lot of folks starting out, they like just think that this is a, oh, you take these drugs away and then you replace them with these herbs. So when people say that to you, and I'm sure it's common, uh, hey, KP, I've got this condition and I want to get off these drugs. Which herbs can I replace them with and how can I do it? So what do you usually say to those, those folks? Well, gosh, we got, it, it only took us 15 minutes to get to the interactions question. <laughs> There's a lot of them. <laughs> well, you're very, you're, you're very efficient in your answers. <laughs> you just go straight to... Question. Uh, that uh, that I get from everybody, from every audience in every way. And it's a very important question, and I think we need to do our due diligence in discussing it. Um, the bottom line is that we really don't know. Um, herbs are multi-chemical compounds that contain thousands of active substances, but they can contain tiny amounts of those things. So again, if we go back to not thinking of herbs as a drug delivery system, but as holistic, specially selected gourmet foods, foodstuffs that have a particular healing action that we select because they're convenient to uh, to use, I think it's a better approach. When I talk to my European colleagues about this, they, they're very surprised that we're so uh, focused on this issue because they say, look, we've been using herbs and drugs together the whole time. We didn't have that 70-year dark ages like you had. We do this every single day. And, uh, yeah, you have to watch what you're doing to a certain extent, but you guys are way, way over-concerned about it. So, you know, maybe in um, 500 years we will have done all the studies we need to do to determine every interaction between every possible drug and every possible herb. Uh, you know, the Veterans Administration did a study here not long ago where they were very concerned about this issue, this issue and they studied this with thousands of patients in many centers. And... The ultimate answer to this question, and remember, you don't get much more establishment than the Veterans Administration, Mm -hmm. was it was essentially a non-issue. They came up with something like 2% of all possible interactions that they studied that would be dangerous in their patients, and they they highlighted a couple. And They said, you know, essentially what I said, do your due diligence, be aware of extreme kinds of situations, and watch for things. 
So ultimately, the way you do it is to cross-taper. You start with a person that's taking a drug, you start with an herbal medicine, you start with a very small amount, you work into it, watch for problems, be aware of what the side effects might be, and then gradually bring the drug dose down. This needs to be done with the physician's cooperation, which of course is uh, challenging. Almost always we can do it successfully, but you want to be very careful. I'm not even going to go into the legal matters, which is something you need to discuss with your attorney, but on a practical matter, uh, you can almost always do it quite effectively. What ends up happening, is, though, is that you have people who aren't committed to the holistic paradigm. They have no herbal experience, and they're expecting the herbs they're taking to be the non-drug drug. So when they look at their one Valium and they compare that to their 15 capsules of valerian to do the same thing, uh, it's, there's not a good match there, and people have more difficulty with those issues than with any possibility of uh, problems from interactions. I see, I see. So this person should really um, be consulting a natural health professional and talking her condition straight through with that person and seeing what they can do yeah, about I, that. Our, that's right. I think our audience is quite varied, and uh, people will have to decide for themselves whether they have enough experience to manage this sort of thing. Mm. But you know, if there's a question about how to do it, they need to see someone who has enough training and has seen this many, many times to be able to understand it. And then it, it depends on the, the person and the and the circumstances. These interactions are calculated by, by a pharmacologist sitting in a back room writing on a blackboard. Virtually no public information about interactions comes from clinical herbalists who have actually experimented with those things. There are a few excellent books on, the, on that topic written by clinical herbalists, but most of the time it's theoretical. Um, you know, in a petri dish, uh, a certain herb causes the blood to coagulate less rapidly. Therefore, that must be a blood thinner. Therefore, it must interact with Coumadin. Therefore, it shouldn't be taken with Coumadin. Now, my perspective is, if it's such a great blood thinner, let's use it instead of Coumadin rather than worrying about the interaction. But that's just mm. not the case. Coumadin, Coumadin is a sledgehammer, and uh, our remedies are uh, feathers. Mm, mm, mm. Wow. Okay. Um Let's get on to uh, Sharon here, who who says her uh, family has a lot of health issues, and uh, she says we've started seeing a, a uh, we started seeing a good chiropractor, and that's helped a lot. Her son gets UTIs, her daughter gets migraines, and has other pro- female problems. Her son has allergies uh, to the nightshade family. They have a grandbaby that has reflux and allergies, and she goes on, says so on and so on. So. Her insurance doesn't cover an ND, naturopathic physician. Uh, what would you suggest some good resources for the, in the self-help direction to help get her family on track? I would go to the uh, website of the American Herbalist Guild and uh, look at suggested books. There's an extensive list there of uh, books written by members. So the American Herbalist Guild is an organization that um, is, it's a professional association for clinical herbalists, and the members have uh, established themselves as uh, reputable uh, authorities, and there's some excellent books that are written by clinical herbalists who actually have real on-the-ground uh, experience. So you want to start with those kinds of things. Uh, the Herb Mentor website uh, would be a great place. For yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dig into all that information and get started. You start with the things that are basically self-limiting, something like an allergy. You, 
it doesn't have to be it's not a fatal condition. You can work with it. If you start to get results, you can work your way into it. Ultimately, these complicated situations probably need the, the advice or the touch of a professional in some way, but you can work with the professional in a way that they understand that you have financial limitations and suggest as much homework and, and um, home participation as possible, mm-hmm. and you just work your way into it slowly but steadily until you learn enough. You know, after all, grandmas handle 95% of people's health conditions all over the world, and you know, we have this wacky system where we pay the highest paid, highest trained professionals in the world to treat scraped knees, tummy problems, and, um, you know, stuffed up noses. Mm. So uh, learn to be a good grandma. Mm. Wow, that's that's great advice. And, and it's so hard, too, KP, because where people live, if they live that way out there, I mean, if they live near us we're, or, or on the like west coast like us or like all up in Seattle, you're down in Eugene. There's there's low cost resources uh, going to, like because we have these I have this naturopathic medicine school near us who does all these you know you can go and see them for you know do student consultations or, or whatever and there's there's those those but other people don't so like uh, and and it really varies in the resources from place to place and I really like that it's like you know see um, just kind of learn learning to do it and, and being like grandma um, and 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 taking it one step at a time and. That's what I'm really so passionate about, really helping people be the family herbalist, you know, just to help themselves and their families and local communities. That's right. Um, so, let's see. Uh, Dana here uh, works with many women uh, who have fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue. I know those are big things these days. I, myself, as an acupuncturist, treat that a lot. It seems like more and more. Um, she would she'd love to uh, know your recommendations for these conditions. Well, first, let me tell you that I wrote a textbook on this subject. Perfect. So, John, I can I can connect with you to get a, you know a link for that somehow uh, yeah. there. My practice for ten years was ninety five percent fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. So I just you know I've waded very deeply in those waters for a long, long time. Uh, my experience is that we can have excellent success with those conditions. In fact, they're much more treatable than is usually thought. I would say um, absolutely completely treatable. The challenge is that both that, that, that disease, it's all the same disease, has, it represents a, a total body collapse, basically. And the longer you've had it, the more things have become damaged from having mm. had it. So over time, uh, it, 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 it takes some serious rebuilding. The, first, we have to distinguish whether or not it's of in, uh, immune or infectious origin. So there's a family of viruses that can cause this condition and these symptoms, and that's the case we have to investigate that and treat those or we don't make much progress mm-hmm. there are some things that can kill that virus i'll give you two suggestions the absolute main core remedies that i've found that will treat those viruses that's the herb black walnut hull and the herb gum benzoin those two herbs one or the other or a combination uh, almost always works to help a person get over the the virus itself typical dose of that combination is about 12 grams a day and you could use a 50-50 combination or even better you could experiment with them each individually in their proportions and uh, as you work up toward the dose people often begin to feel better dramatically better quite quickly so that even within two three weeks they're noticing some difference that takes the it may take six months to to kill the virus but slowly but surely people begin to recover from that it suppresses the virus Another thing I'd like to mention is the mineral magnesium 
Well, let me mention two things as just being the, the, the core treatments in my experience. First is magnesium. I've seen people uh, go from being completely diagnosable with fibromyalgia to no longer fitting the diagnostic magnesium. Very dramatic. So we have to uh, fill their tanks with magnesium, and that means using uh, right up to bowel tolerance, which for most people is about 1,200 milligrams a day, and over the months, fill their eating magnesium, which would be great. And if you have access to someone who can do IV magnesium, that makes it go faster. The other one is vitamin D, which is, I think, the breakthrough of the century for natural healing. We found things about vitamin D that we were just so wrong for generations, and it's just, it's revolutionary national care. Again, I've seen people become completely asymptomatic with uh, nothing but vitamin D. Some people's fibromyalgia, I think, is just literally a vitamin D deficiency, and somewhere around 85% of Americans are overtly deficient when they're blood tested. So you can assume someone has a vitamin D deficiency. You bring their blood up to the proper level, and uh, over a matter of a few weeks, uh, it's really limp in, leap out. Astounding. Hey, folks, this is John. Just a little break in the interview. As you can you could hear there, things started to get a little sketchy in the audio there as there was a big storm brewing outside. I left all that at the end of that intact because you could mostly make out what he was saying and there was good stuff. So I later picked up the interview where we left off when I asked KP more about vitamin D and magnesium. So... What I want to know is, um, you're just talking about magnesium and vitamin D, and um, what are the, just for most of us out there wanting to make sure we have this in our diet, um, or, or, or what are the best ways of taking it? Because I, I know vitamin D, like we have it in some meats and eggs and all, but I've had people tell me, oh, that's not enough, you should supplement. I get a little confused in that area. So could you kind of shed some light there? Vitamin D is, is we're not designed to... Uh intake vitamin D from food. Uh, there is some vitamin D in some foods, and you would get some, but by comparison to, to the amount that your body makes in your skin when exposed to the sun, the amount that you could have in food uh, is absolutely negligible. So we're supposed to be out in the sun uh, producing vitamin D in our skin. It's made from cholesterol in the skin, and then it's absorbed, and our body makes about 20,000 units a day of vitamin D naturally uh, when exposed to the sun. So you have to supplement is the bottom line, and you want to use vitamin D3, and that's easily available from any health food store. It's very inexpensive, pennies a day, and uh, you need to get yourself into the normal range on a blood test. So you could just, vitamin D is extremely non-toxic, despite what we all learned in junior high health class. And you could um, assume that you're deficient and start uh, with a daily dose. Most people, that's going to be around 5,000. Uh, units and then at some point in the near future, take a blood test, and then uh, depending on what you find, adjust the dose. And most people have to take about three blood tests over a period of about 18 months to dial in the amount that will keep them in the normal range. Magnesium uh, is easily available in food. It's it's abundant in our soil, and uh, it's what makes vegetables green. So green vegetables uh, are the main source, and then whole grains. Um, exactly the things we don't eat, which is why it's the second most common nutrition deficiency. Mm. So a stinging nettle, uh, herbal and nourishing herbal infusion would would uh, would help with something like the fibromyalgia and whatnot because it's uh, giving you uh, all that magnesium, but also lots of other good stuff too. 
Yeah, of course, and that's why we choose these herbs is because these nutrients are more concentrated. So something like nettle is a great example of culinary herbalism where it's, you know, sort of between food and medicine. It's way more nutritious than a donut, but not doesn't have as much magnesium as a magnesium uh, capsule. So the, um, treat magnesium like, or, sorry, treat um, nettle like spinach, and uh, you're in good shape. Oh, wow. Great. Um, okay, so... Darcy wants to know about um, herbs that can help with nerve pain in general um, and or from sciatica or neuralgia. She's read that ashwagandha should not be taken for more than six weeks at a time, uh, not be used if you have some acute arthritis or prone to diabetes. She wasn't sure about that. Is that true? Um yeah, so that's basically what she was, was curious about, the nerve pain from sciatica or neuralgia and how ashwagandha can play um, um, into that. Let's talk about uh, ashwagandha first, then we can go back to the, uh, to the nerve pain. This is a great example of exactly what I was talking about, of this blackboard science used, being used to um, understand herbal medicine. It doesn't work very well. Ashwagandha is used uh, for extensive long periods of time, years at a time, for an entire lifetime perhaps. It's just the root of a plant closely related to tomatoes and potatoes. It's a food basically, and uh, you can use it in substantial amounts over an extensive period of time. Uh, Ayurveda makes no mention of limiting any kind of use to, uh, to six weeks. That said, uh, this, this being an Ayurvedic herb, it is recommended for people according to Ayurvedic indications. Now, the arthritis situation, I think the idea is that it's a nightshade. It's the root of a plant in the, related to tomatoes and uh, eggplants. I've never seen anybody with nightshade sensitivity have a reaction to ashwagandha. The amount of nightshade toxin, if, it's in the, if it is in ashwagandha, it is remarkably low in the root because it just doesn't cause that, that kind of an issue. So I would consider it to be a, a food, a culinary herb that could be used ongoingly. And interestingly, it's an herb that is very associated with the nervous system and one of the first herbs I would think of in terms of rebuilding the nervous system in a slow, gradual way. Ashwagandha works uh, slowly and has its long-term stamina-enhancing and immune-enhancing functions over, let's say, a period of about a year, taking modest doses. Now, that said, let's just talk about another one of its properties uh, associated with the nervous system, and that is that it's a fantastic anti-anxiety herb. It's the best herb I've ever seen for anxiety. It doesn't treat anxiety uh, immediately. You take a Valium, uh, your anxiety is uh, quelled in 15 minutes. Ashwagandha is more like 15 days. Mm -hmm. So it's rebuilding and preventive. But I've had many people tell me that they can trade their their, uh, Valium straight across for ashwagandha. So I usually have people start with about a gram the first day and increase by a gram a day, let's say, over about two weeks. And we get to about a two-week period and we get to the dose where when they stabilize on that dose, their anxiety just seems to vaporize mm-hmm. and they, it just does get generated. And over time, um, usually give it to them for about a year. Maybe they take it for six months at that dose of something like 12 grams a day and then slowly that dose comes down and the anxiety just never returns. It's a nerve rejuvenator. On nerve pain. The other herb I was going to recommend is Gotacola, uh, which is probably the premier nerve in the world for, uh, sorry, premier herb in the world for nerve regeneration. So for something like sciatica, where there's actual trauma to the, to the nerve, Gotacola uh, is a great choice. Most people 
don't understand gotocola very well and use it in doses that are way too modest to have the spectacular success that it has in Asia. It's a, a mild salad vegetable like lettuce. Hmm. It grows in the, in the swamps, in the, in the jungles, in the wet, steamy tropics. So we need to use large amounts, and a typical dose would be one ounce of the herb by dry weight brewed into tea and uh, consuming that every day, and we could even go to higher amounts. So that's likely to help re- help rejuvenate the nerve tissue itself, and that one works a little faster so people can begin to feel results within days. The question about sciatica, though, is, again, kind of getting back to this issue of we don't have a magic bullet for sciatica, that if you just take enough gotocola, that will prevent the nerve from hurting because it's being pushed on. You have to find out why the nerve is being pushed on and get that handled through all the kinds of things that we would do, body work, dietary change, acupuncture, psychotherapy, exercise, just all those things. They have to look at herbs as a slice of that whole holistic picture. I, yeah, I agree. I had a sciatic situation a year or two ago, and I have a couple of therapies that I go to and still go to that uh, I've kept it away, but I kind of have to keep going. <laughs> and it's really helping. I don't notice I have it anymore, but it wasn't, and you couldn't just do it through food for me, that's for sure. Yep. Um, all right, so um, we have someone else uh, kind of going off of that was um, interested in uh, asking about joint health, especially as we age, and herbs that help with tendinitis and inflammation. Uh, we talked a little bit about inflammation, but, you know, in, in, in context to, uh, to joint health. Right. Well, here again, this, this is a great example of individualized therapy. So mm-hmm. is the problem chronic inflammation or is it, let's call it degeneration, mm-hmm. cold, crunchy, crackly, unlubricated joints? And those two things require very different kind of treatment. So people in midlife often have inflammatory conditions of their, of their joints, and we want to use uh, anti-inflammatory remedies. As people age, everybody's body cools down and has a tendency to get less lubricated classic osteoarthritis, so we want to treat that with warming, lubricating remedies. This is a good chance to mention my favorite herb, turmeric. I'm known in the herb world as Mr. Turmeric. <laughs> I've been talking about turmeric for 30 years. I'm just so impressed with all the things that it does, and it's the number one most researched herb these days. More scientific papers are being published on turmeric than any other herb. It's a hot topic in Alzheimer's, anti-aging research generally, inflammation, cardiovascular disease, cancer. Uh, we just go right down the line. So turmeric uh, is uh, an anti-inflammatory. As anti-inflammatories go, it's a little mild, so the dose has to be high. But it has some great advantages in that it has all those other properties, and it helps to de-inflame and remineralize joints so it can be used with warm or cold uh, conditions. Um, It probably would benefit everyone to use a little turmeric in their diet every single day, like the way it's used in Asia. A teaspoon a day in your food would be adequate. Once you've got a problem, though, you have to look at higher doses, and you may want to use multi-tablespoon doses per day, which means that you have to find some way to hide it, stir it into a bite of yogurt or oatmeal or some way to, to take it down. You'll figure out, figure out your favorite way, but it's, it's one of the herbs that makes the biggest difference for joint health over time of any that you could choose. Wow, and just cooking with, I love that. So you just put some turmeric, eat a lot of curry. Great. So in other words, you want to help your joints, Eat some curry. <laughs> Absolutely, and honestly, for mo- most people like the taste. If it's used modestly, you can throw a teaspoon in your beans or, uh, you know, in the sauce of your vegetables. It, you know, makes things uh, yellow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be a 
have a fancy 20 ingredient curry uh, combination just put it in anything um, that where it grabs you mm. and that problem maybe for someone with tendonitis like you said along with some other therapies could really could really help you through it faster acupuncture like you said whatnot um, Absolutely. that's awesome um, and um, let's see oh yes Jill um, she has a friend with uh, diverticulitis um, and was wondering what you recommend for for this that's interesting yeah, so diverticulitis is the creation of uh, pouchy pockets in the large intestine that tend to accumulate uh, fecal matter that doesn't get eliminated consistently with the bowel movements, and then they become uh, inflamed. That's the itis part of the of the thing. Uh, this is a challenging condition because once those pockets are there, they tend to hang around. There are two main things that we do as... Um, as herbalists, uh, well, let's say three. Uh, the first is to reduce inflammation or use um, modest, ongoing, long-term anti-inflammatories like turmeric. The other is to use uh, astringent remedies that tighten tissues. So that could be whatever your favorite astringent remedy is, um, shizandra from Chinese medicine or uh, oak bark or you know whatever you uh, like. And that will help to um, tone the wall of the large intestine and hopefully reduce the size of those pockets. The other thing is to eat a very high-fiber diet so that that fiber, as it kind of scratches its way down the large intestine and sweeps the walls, is able to kind of grab that, that leftover material in the pouches and keep the pouches uh, emptied out. It's also critical to make sure that a person has um, adequate bowel function. So in natural healing, we would like from one per meal to one per day would be acceptable, but no less than that range. All right, so, you know... <laughs> The, the interesting. I'm looking through some of these questions and how many you were talking about, like about inflammation, and how many are are itises, are inflammations here. <laughs> so yeah, we're really learning that it's the scourge of the modern American lifestyle, and so many things from Alzheimer's to cancer to heart disease start as like a slow cook. We're all just sort of simmering ourselves to death in our own, you know, hormones, and it comes from. Um, lack of healthy fats in the diet, lack of micronutrients, um, excessive stress, and lack of sleep. And ultimately, those things come together, and finally, that slow chronic damage, finally, the tissue has had enough, and something, some kind of crisis happens. I'm feeling like this call is like the, uh, that we're doing here is like the, the basic uh, handbook for the... Uh for for uh, for basic American health, <laughs> you know, it's uh, 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 yeah, it's amazing. And 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 also, if I'm correct me if I'm I, I don't know, I, our our connection was a little broken up uh, when we were talking about vitamin D. But um, uh, a, f- a friend of mine was telling me about vitamin D also being really helpful for preventing inflammation. Is that true? Oh, it's spectacular! It's one of the most dramatic things I've ever seen. It's a very very potent anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. And basically, that's what it does. It's, it's the most ubiquitous nutrient in your body. Every cell has a receptor for vitamin D, and it does hundreds of things. It's a multi-purpose uh, hormone. It's not a vitamin, actually. It's a pro-hormone that our body makes. It's made out of cholesterol, like the other sex and stress hormones. And our body uses it to treat inflammation. And it's one of the most dramatic things I've ever seen. So we use a, a high-loading dose. And that's something that people could investigate with their practitioner to bring the blood level up to the proper level, and inflammation just vaporizes. It's just astounding. Holy moly. Um, <laughs> eczema, lifelong eczema gone in a week. 
Now, that doesn't mean the condi- underlying condition is not. It just means that the inflammation is brought down. And then we bring them down to a, a maintenance dose where they can sustain that level. And these inflammatory conditions and, and pain conditions just uh, disappear in an incredibly short time. It's just astounding. Wow, wow. Looks like we have another itis question here. We have uh, someone that says, uh, Luann is diagnosed with ulcerative colitis when she was 19. She's now 49. Uh, She knows from experience that all dairy products, no matter how minute, will initiate this condition in her, the symptoms. I don't know if it's true for others, uh, but for most part, I have been able to keep the disease in remission for most of my adult life through a dairy-free diet, stress-free lifestyle. Um... Uh, but recently, this is not so. She's going through uh, some hormonal changes with menopause and wondered if this might be causing the problems. Um, she wants to know if uh, you believe that there's a correlation with diet and hormonal changes in ulcerative colitis and if there's any uh, Ayurvedic theories to the root of this illness. How old did she say she uh, She's now 49. Yeah, so... She's in that midlife uh, time that I talked about where people tend to inflame uh, the most easily. Uh, people start to kind of on the upward road of inflammation in their, let's say, early or mid-20s, and it tends to peak around 40 and then start to wind down uh, toward about 60. So she's well over the peak, but still in that middle time where inflammation is challenging to uh, to control. So she's done all these preventive measures by removing things that tend to aggravate it, but she hasn't handled the underlying issue, which is the body not controlling its own inflammation. Why does she have colitis? Somebody else has gastritis. Somebody else has dermatitis. Somebody else has bursitis. It's those genetic propensities that we talked about Mm -hmm. earlier. So ultimately, she needs to investigate. She needs to do exactly the things she's doing, the stress-free lifestyle, and then investigate a cooling uh, diet, which would include things like cucumbers and uh, celery and green vegetables. Uh, and then in terms of controlling the specific symptoms, my main uh, pillar herbs for colitis, for keeping it, for keeping a flare from happening or treating a flare if it happens, uh, is uh, marshmallow root, which is a demulcent that soothes the uh, lining of the digestive tract, and uh, turmeric again, which is astringent, which is that what we want in that kind of condition, and also anti-inflammatory. So my typical dose is two heaping tablespoons of marshmallow root and two heaping tablespoons of turmeric. Those can be taken individually or uh, mixed together, but they need to be mixed in something that's a little mushy to make them Hmm. uh, possible to swallow. So it could be a bite of oatmeal or anything like that. Hmm. It's important to remember to take plenty of water with the marshmallow root because it absorbs many times its weight in water. So once it goes in, drink a couple tall tumblers of water so that it can swell up and create that beautiful lubricating slime Mm. that lubricates the large intestine. Uh, Another great herb for this condition is um, licorice root. Uh, Licorice root is is one of the most well-known anti-inflammatories and one of the best. So it's also demulcent. So you've got an herb that has demulcent and anti-inflammatory activity. Unfortunately, licorice is a little stool loosening, so most people can't get in more than about five grams before they start to have loose stool and People with ulcerative colitis tend toward loose stool anyway, so that's a little more challenging. But um, one more thing to consider. You know, it, um, there, I see some. I, I'm starting to see these. You know, once again, pattern a lot of these kind of uh, more inflamed or kind of heated conditions. So, when a, another person writes in about 
night sweats and hot flashes, and they started about two weeks ago. She's 43. Started drinking sage tea before bed, but it doesn't really help. Want to hear your views on it. So do some of these kind of like treatments that you're talking about or therapies or culinary medicine, they kind of overlap? I mean, can can she also take like, you know, a lot of, use some of these herbs and, and, and dietary advice that you've been saying for other things? Yeah, very much so. Now, of course, there's a hormonal uh, base to her situation, and that needs to be handled. And the way we handle that is to go back about uh, 40 years and have her start using long-term sustaining hormone-balancing remedies. But, of course, we can't do that. So now we're stuck with, with what we have, and it is what it is. So she needs to get going with some things that are known to support hormone uh, balance while using some things to help her feel a little better uh, temporarily uh, in addition to the cooling diet. So let me recommend uh, a couple things that, that work pretty well temporarily. The first one is the Ayurvedic herb Shatavari, which is the root of a, a type of asparagus, again, a very food-like plant that over the long term is the main remedy in Ayurveda for uh, female hormone balance. And it works very, very well for hot flashes if taken in higher doses. Mm. So a typical dose for shatavri for hot flashes would be uh, about uh, 12 grams a day. And uh, that's a very neutral tasting herb that can be taken um, just in powder form. It could be stirred into oatmeal or yogurt, or it could be taken in... Uh, capsules and you basically just start start with something like a gram a day the first day and just work up gradually step by step until she gets relief and uh, that often will work well the other one i wanted to mention is another a tonic or adaptogen or stamina enhancing remedy that also is great for hot flashes and that's the chinese herb shizandra berry shizandra is um has many of the same features we just talked about with uh with shatavari kind of a woman's herb. It's a kind of a mild, minor tonic or adaptogen. And uh, the beautiful thing about it is that it's fantastic for night sweats. It's very specifically, uh, very much a specific for night sweats. It doesn't solve the heat problem so much, but the actual sweating. So many women say, many women say that it's not so much that they're hot, it's just that they wake up drenched in a pool of their own sweat, and that's what makes them so miserable. Hmm. So Shazandra, same situation, uh, that could be used in capsules. Um, it's made used in tea in Chinese medicine, but it's pretty um, intense tasting. So capsules work well. Take one capsule the first night, two tap capsules the next night, and work up gradually until the night sweats come under control. That combination is often uh, just miraculous. Wow. You know, there's a, another person here as, who has a history of endocrine disorder, Cushing's disease, and uh, was going through menopause, and she had... Um, uh, she hasn't hasn't had much trouble with night sweats, but she became an insomniac. She tried a lot of herbs and found that a combination of um, maca, M-A-C-A, and ashwagandha has eliminated the problem. But she's read that these herbs are supposed to be used to help your sex life. Can you enlighten us about those herbs? Are they adaptogenic? Or they, she just wants to know, like, is, is this okay? Is this dangerous? Or is this okay what she's doing? <laughs> sure. Oh, that, I'm really glad to hear that. And that's um, exactly where we go with Cushing's disease. Cushing's disease is a serious condition, and it needs to be treated by a professional. It's really, uh, it would be something that would be challenging to, to treat for a, for a lay person to treat. Um, ashwagandha, in particular, is known for helping um, sleep. Uh, the scientific name is Withania 
Sam Nefera, which tells you about its, you know, its history. So ashwagandha enhances and balances sleep rhythms. It doesn't make you sleepy when you take it. So you can take it uh, during the day, and uh, over time it helps to it helps you be a better sleeper. So over a matter of a few weeks of taking it in modest doses, you find that your, uh, your sleep is just a better, more consistent, more refreshing. And maca is not particularly known to be associated with sleep per se, but it's another hormone balancer that is a very similar to ashwagandha, ginseng, and some of these other ones we talked about. The, the ultimate answer to that, the Cushing situation, is to support and balance the endocrine system, which is what these adaptogenic tonics do. And uh, ultimately, things your body knows how to heal itself. You give it what it needs. So that's why they're known to be um, herbs that are good for your sex life, because they just make your hormones healthy, and then you do what you do, and people are sexy, and that's where we go with it. Wow. Okay. So that's good. That's probably a relief to her. <laughs> um, so um, Joanne here has a question, and gosh, we're, we're uh, it's amazing. We, we's, um, amazing answers, and we've been oh, we're near wrap it up. We'll ask a couple questions here, um, but um, it's amazing. We've kind of gone right, right, right through them. Um, so, so she's a type type two diabetic, and she's taken insulin, and uh, was on oral hypoglycemics uh, um, along with the insulin until the pancreas and liver got compromised. Pancreatic enzymes got extremely high, and liver enzymes high. The doctor said to stop taking the pills until the symptoms went away. I want to take uh, herbs instead of synthetic pills. I did some research and I'm experimenting with fenugreek, bitter melon, uh, gym, hmm, gym, gymnema silvestri. I don't, I don't know that. And goats right. and goats root. Um, I don't know if I pronounced that right. So she's taking yep. the, the, this in the in capsules and she's also eating better, doing some phys ed, and her enzyme count is decreasing and the blood sugars are staying below the 140 mark. Even so, I just Great. don't know if she's what she's doing is okay with the herbs. You know, it's, it's, she, I guess she's feeling a little uneasy about like, is this the right thing? You know, kind of. Well, uh, she hit my top three, bing, 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 right out of the gate. Uh, <laughs> I, I have no experience with goat's through. It's on everyone's list for diabetes. I just don't, I uh, haven't used it clinically. But uh, fenugreek is stupendous for diabetes. It helps to uh, trap carbohydrates um, in the gut so that they don't get um, ingested and can't be turned into blood sugar. And it has an amino acid that helps to lower blood sugar in the body. Bitter melon uh, is a great choice. Um, that's a, bitter herbs in general tend to be good for blood sugar and blood fats. So that's a very standard remedy from um, Asia that I use a lot. Bitter melon can be used in a culinary way. Uh, it's uh, quite bitter for most people's taste, but if you enjoy the taste, you can cook it into food using it like, let's say, like zucchini, uh, or you can juice it. So for people who have difficulty with the bitterness, uh, juicing works quite well. You can run it right through your champion juicer. And most people find that a range of, let's say, two to four ounces a day uh, is appropriate. And, of course, diabetics are managing their blood sugar. So ideally, we would like to bump the fenugreek dose up and the melon dose up while adjusting the insulin. We should see the insulin need uh, go down. Gymnema is um, not a healing herb. Um, it's a, let's call it an insulin substitute. Hmm. Um, it basically makes the pancreas put out more insulin. So whatever pancreas function she has left is basically being directed to sort of work harder, which is a good temporary solution, and it's, uh, I definitely use it. 
but it's not a it's not going to help rebalance her body and support the rest of her body to help out her pancreas as much as possible. Even in these very serious cases, it's usually possible in type 2 diabetes to help unwind this whole situation and get a person going with a program of, of diet, exercise, and uh, natural medicine that will allow them to, if not completely remove the insulin, at least bring it, uh, bring it down substantially. So, so she's, she's on the right track. Oh, yeah. Those are wonderful herbs to think about. Great. Um, I think I'll ask, ask you one more question here before uh, wrapping some things up because i got a couple of questions myself. Uh, uh, Tarek uh, was wondering, Diaz, um, <clears throat> there's a mom that's breastfeeding an eight-month-old and has postpartum depression. Uh, how about that? Well, it, that's a challenging situation because breastfeeding is... <laughs> A, a very contentious area. Mm. Uh, it's easier to deal with in pregnancy, but of course the baby has the potential to get every uh, remedy that uh, that goes into the mom, mm. and we often sort of don't know which ones of these go through the milk. So you have to be very careful with what you know what's um, used. Um, one herb that might be uh, considered is the uh, Asian herb Shankapushpi. Shampushpi is in the morning glory family. It's a very mild mood elevator, and many people find out that it just really makes the difference. Hmm. Now, I don't know. Uh, you live in a sunny climate. Uh, I live in a uh, rainy climate, so I don't know where the that the um, questioner is from. Oh, the, uh, she's from. Uh, uh, I don't live in a sunny climate. <laughs> I live in Seattle area. <laughs> oh, I thought you were on the other side of the mountains. Oh no, 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 no. Like, Ro- Rosalie lives on the really other wet. side of the mountains, but I'm on. Uh, I'm on. Okay. I'm on. Uh, that's a good point. I should have said that. Uh, I'm like about an hour from Seattle, like you know, near Redmond. Okay. Uh, t- let's uh, see. This person is from Michigan, so sometimes sunny, but mostly cold. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I was just going to point out that where I live in this uh, cold, dark, rainy place, uh, Champushpi works very, very well for uh, seasonal affective disorder. And it's something that when I added it to my repertoire, I found that it just really gave me another tool that often works very well. It's a pretty mild herb. It's a cooling herb with some benefit for the liver. And uh, you could just use it according to the needs of the uh, of the body. And it should be safe for breastfeeding. I want to say that with a big caveat because there are lots of different opinions about how herbs should be used during breastfeeding. We tend to be conservative here because we, uh, because of all the obstacles to success with those things. Hmm. Well, could 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 uh, some uh, herbal infusions with something like uh, raspberry leaf and and uh, something like that help? Uh, with that, yeah. I mean, I think honestly, just using some very simple kinds of things that would be health supporting in general would likely to be of uh, benefit. I mean, you mentioned nettle earlier, but just getting nutrients in. Pregnancy is, is tough on the body. It's hard to imagine how our ancestors had, you know, 20 children and then went out and worked in the field the next day. But uh, it somehow, uh, you know, it's, it just really takes a lot out of a woman's body. So just rejuvenating by eating very power-packed foods, superfoods, uh, uh, wheat, gra- wheatgrass, uh, those powdered wheatgrass juice, uh, bee pollen, uh, you know, those kinds of things, and using nutritive herbal infusions as beverages, cooking food in those things. Instead of cooking your spaghetti in straight water, cook it in astragalus broth. Mm. Mm. That's, that's, that, yes, you know, it's as simple as that. You know, KP, like, um, 
this has been awesome because you know you, we've, we've taken us on quite a a, a journey here in this just just you know thinking about things a lot differently and also introducing us to a lot of um herbal remedies and, and plants that uh on, on herb mentor that we don't we don't really talk about too much because they've been kind of unfamiliar and um i just want to make sure that i'm correct in saying that a lot of these um you know herbs like talked about like ashwagandha turmeric since you're Mr. Turmeric, I mean, uh, I I was honored a couple months ago to interview Dr. Dandelion, and now I've got Mr. Turmeric on the phone. It's, been, it's, it's great. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, uh, your book, Way of Ayurvedic Herbs, um, will do? Do you cover most of these herbs that we've been, or all of them that we've talked about in this um, call? Well, not all of them in that book, because. Um that's a book specifically about Ayurvedic herbs. Mm-hmm. So the ones that we talked about from uh, South Asia, like Gotakola and Ashwagandha, are extensively uh, covered. Uh, the other two more two recent books that include more of those herbs would be my book Body Balance, mm-hmm. Body Balance, which is a book about body chemistry, but very oriented toward herbal medicine. That's easily available on um, Amazon and uh, uh, Herbal Defense. Um, which uh, is a very general book about uh, herbal medicine and using it to stay healthy. And again, many of those are covered in that book. And I like to ask uh, herbalists that I interview, what do you have a specific place that you like folks to purchase your books from? Because sometimes people have a site or they have a bookseller they like to support. Uh, good question. Uh, no, not in particular. Uh, Amazon would be fine wherever you know people can find it. The um, herbal defense and body balance are out of print, so you'll go to the used section. I saw uh, body balance on sale, a copy for twenty five cents the other day, so you get a good buy. On it. <laughs> oh, I think the I think I think the prices are going to go up. There's going to be a whole market now for <laughs> after this call. Everyone's going to be buying up all the twenty five cent copies, <laughs> or or abe dot com. There's another one. Um, that's great. So I, I'm looking forward to uh, to to. to ordering a copy of your of your book uh, the way of ayurvedic herbs because i myself uh would you know i was want to learn more about that um gosh you know i i just feel like we just covered the tip of the iceberg we got we got to have you back sometime kp especially since you're so local to me oh, we got to hang out sometime and be fun and your website was uh, under development as when i went to kp and and that be coming uh out with some stuff on there soon we have uh, uh yeah it's just um uh, be, um offline for uh, repairs. Or for repairs, okay. So uh, Yeah, so it'll be back up soon. And we'll have that link on the page where this uh, podcast is. Um, but if you don't see that link and you li- hear, hear this on iTunes later on or something, uh, kpcalsa.com. So, KP... You know, a, better choice, a better choice would be my school's mm. uh, website, which would be packed with more information. The whole suite of websites is down for uh, a big improvement. Uh, big bunch of improvements right now, but it, my, the name of my school is the International Integrative Educational Institute. So if you just Google that, you'll uh, you'll get to the uh, website when it's uh, a backup. Soon. Okay, I'll, I'll I'll do that too. Oh, and I should I'm wondering too. Uh, do you when do you have a uh, when pe- if people want to um, for consulting, do you just do that live in in person? Do you see clients in the Eugene area, or do you do phone consultations or? I have a very limited practice in Eugene. Uh, I um, see people in, I'm in Seattle about once a month, and I see people there. Mm-hmm. So they should just call my uh, phone number or um, 
email me if they're interested in connecting that way. And then I do a lot of work on the phone, so it would be perfectly fine to uh, to do that. That works out quite well, actually. And the contact information for that would just then be off your main website or your school website? Uh, Don, I can just give that to you, and you can post it there. Okay, I will do that. All right, so um, I'll post it on the site there for you all, folks. So, um, KP, Kalsa. Thank you so much for joining. It's been really an honor to have you here, and we'd we love to have you back sometime. So thanks so much for taking your time and, and spent, you know, just giving these awesome answers to all these people's questions. We really, really, really appreciate it. Very much, John. Okay. Herb Mentor Radio on HerbMentor.com is a production of LearningHerbs.com. Visit LearningHerbs.com for free herbal lessons, including Herb Mentor News, Home Remedy Secrets, and Supermarket Herbalism. You'll also find the Herbal Medicine Making Kit and our board game Wildcraft. Herb Mentor Radio. Copyright LearningHerbs.com. All rights reserved. Thanks so much for listening.